the College Planning Edge. Multiply your odds of getting into your dream college and get your hands on thousands of dollars of fat, juicy scholarships. Brought to you by Lockwood College Prep, helping college-bound families get the edge in college admissions, financial aid, scholarships, and test prep. Originally, Hello there, it's Andy Lockwood, Lockwood College Prep, and we're doing a special snowbound edition of College Planning Secrets, one of our, uh, one of the names for the college planning stuff that we talk about a couple times a month. The backstory is initially, I w- originally I was scheduled to speak out at, uh, in the Smithtown Public Library. Tonight, we had supposedly had about 70 people registered, and the library was open today, but we made a mutual decision to uh, to not do the workshop and reschedule at a date to be determined later. But instead, since I had the night off, uh, I figured I would invite anyone and uh, everyone who was interested in you know trying to figure out how to pay wholesale for college, meaning what they can do to cut the crazy cost of college, to um, to help their kids choose colleges if they don't know where to start how to uh, multiply your chances of getting into a top college, especially if you think about it when your kid has really the same grades and the same SAT or ACT scores as maybe T or ACT scores as maybe 5,000 people, how you distinguish yourself on paper. So that's what uh, this presentation is going to be all about. Uh, I don't know how long it's going to go. I'm, I'm guessing we're going to do you know, maybe 30 minutes or so. I, ha- I have a list of questions, um, stuff that I had uh, advertised before and gotten people to sign up in Smithtown before we open this up to everyone on the interwebs. So I'll just read through the topics pretty quickly, then I'll start breaking them down and covering them. I'll stop periodically for your questions. If you have any questions about financial aid scholarships, getting into college, choosing a major, choosing a list of colleges, uh, anything that has to do with you know, the whole process, this is a great opportunity at no charge to be able to, uh, to throw them at me. Oh, and I'm going to be giving away my book. So I wrote a book called How to Pay, well I wrote three books, books but uh, I wrote this uh, for college. That's the old version, um, about three years old. So I took it upon myself to update it this year. I just finished it off a couple of weeks ago, and I'm giving. I'm going to be giving it away. I mean, you can buy it if you want. It makes a great holiday gift. But um, I'm going to give you a link to download it for free um, in a few minutes after I take a break here from some of the qu- uh, from some of the topics and the questions. So let me see who is with us. So far, I want to make sure that the broadcast is audible, not necessarily intelligent, but uh, I want to make sure that you can hear us okay. So I see we've got a few people coming on now. Um, just say hi in the comment section. Let me know you can hear me, just, just so I'm not shouting at no one. But I see we have about nine people so far. So good. Okay. Here we go here. Um, all right. looks like you guys can hear me. Which is all right. Looks like you guys can hear me, which is great. But if you, this is the place in the comment section. That's the place to ask me your questions. So, all right. Topic number one: the 529 college savings account and why they're not all they were supposed to be, cracked up to be, and what to do about it if you have one. Topic two: the truth about what it takes to get into a top college. Hint: it's not politically correct, and it's based on way more. That's several A's 
than grades and scores. Uh, how, to how to negotiate a better deal with the college even if you can't get your hands on any compromising photos of the dean or wiretap audio or you name it. Uh, the screwball reason an expensive private college can actually cost less than an El Chipo State University. Does any doubt about, uh, any question about who wrote these? Uh, let me let me put those doubts to rest. I wrote these all. Uh, next topic, the biggest mistake families can make in college. Um, your guidance counselor says that can flat out sabotage your chances of admission to your dream school. That's uh, probably a little controversial, I think, especially if there's any guidance counselors watching. And 4.5 loopholes, any one of which could triple your eligibility for financial aid. And finally, special advice or strategies for business owners. So that's what's on tap. Uh, hello to uh, Dan. I see you have a question. So yeah, anyone who has questions like Dan, pop them right here in comments. Don't be shy. Even if you're watching this on replay, I'm happy to um, I'm happy to, to field them field them later. And um, uh, and if I can't answer it, I'll defer to Pearl. That's like a complicated financial aid question. We're, we're getting a lot of. Um, this time of year, we're getting a lot of um, sort of, uh, I don't know what the right word is, I guess, antagonistic type emails forwarded from colleges to the financial aid question. We're, we're getting a lot of, um, this time of year, we're getting a lot of um, sort of, uh, I don't know what the right word is, I guess, antagonistic type emails forwarded from colleges to our clients, to us that are along the lines of, hey, we don't have your stuff, file it, or you made a correction, uh, you know, stuff like that. So, so, so Pearl and I were talking this morning, it's, it's, it's not like filing a tax return where you file it and then you're done. You make a payment and then you're done. In, in many cases, filing the financial aid forms is just the start of it all. And then what, what that does, it triggers a whole lot of other, okay, we got your form, now send us your dependent verification worksheet, send us your non-tax filer statement, send us your tax returns via IDOC and all this other type of stuff. And, and a lot of times, Pearl's giving me an example this, uh, this morning, a lot of times the colleges don't know their, you know, what, what the right and the left hand are doing. They're not, they're not communicating. We had a client today who, who was told, we need your, um, go, log into your account and pull up the list of items that we need because we still didn't get boom, 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 boom. And I, well, maybe there's three things. So Pearl dutifully logged into that account and she saw it listed in the account that every item that the college and the other email said it didn't receive was checked off as having been received. But because but, you know, it was sent in a couple of weeks ago. But still, these automated emails go out and they cause further confusion. It's, it's kind of irritating, you know, and, and, and it's unduly stressful. Okay, so let's talk about the 529 and why they're potentially not all they're cracked up to be. The deal with the 529 is that it's not necessarily uh, how much, it's not whether it counts against you, I should say, it's how much it counts against you, meaning that if two families are applying for college and one has a 529 and one doesn't, the family with the 529 will receive college, all other things being equal. The 529s were sold for, you know, for, uh, for um, legitimate tax reasons as a good investment because the earnings grow tax-free, you, you can pull out the money without any penalties if you use it for higher education, that type of thing. However, those assets, let's say you, you stash 100 grand away in a 529, that can actually penalize you somewhere around 5,000 bucks in, in a reduced 
eligibility, meaning you will receive less, $5,000 less, up to $5,000 less per year at, uh, you know, at many colleges. So sometimes, and this is, I, I can't even say that this is the majority of times, and, and infrequently, um, it makes sense to get rid of a 529 and put it into an asset, a type of savings account that doesn't penalize you at all. And those types of accounts will be discussed in a few minutes. Those are part of the 4.5 loopholes. Anyone triple your eligibility. I promised that in the beginning. So, um, so sometimes the 529 is a bad deal. There are other times, no matter what a parent does, they're not going to qualify for need-based aid because they make too much money. You know, the financial aid formulas contemplate 20. I'm sorry, about 70, 75, 77 factors, including income, which is much more important. And that, so there isn't a magic number, though, uh, that if you go over it, you're not going to be able to qualify for anything. But um, that being said, if you make too much money for the, in, the, in the financial aid formulas, it doesn't really matter if you have a 529 or not. In fact, it might be a good thing if you're not going to otherwise qualify for need-based aid because then you have the tax benefits. So the 529 is kind of a mixed bag. It's neither friend nor foe. It's not good or bad. It, it's one of these things where it really depends. And for some families, it hurts them. For many families, it's great. I can't tell you, you know, whether it's good for you or not, but what I can tell you is what you need to look at is I can't tell you, you know, whether it's good for you or not, but what I can tell you is what you need to look at is what's, what is your eligibility? Cal you know, can you calculate the expected family contribution, your expected family contribution, which you can do on, a, on the uh, FAFSA website, and then figure out if there's any ways to lower that that contribution by sheltering assets. So that's a little, ex uh, I was, you know, that's the type of thing I talk about in my workshops. I give examples. This this uh, presentation tonight is really you know, just kind of a almost like a rough draft of that. But if you are interested in learning more about how the formulas work and the and more specifically what that means for you in terms of qualifying for more money, number one. I've got other workshops coming up. You can go to our, our main site, LockwoodCollegePrep.com. And I'm also going to, like I said before, if you're just joining us, this is new to you, I'm going to be giving out a copy of our um, my, my revised book, How to Pay Wholesale for College. So, hello. Okay, good. We got a uh, watching from the Portland Diner a couple of days ago. I don't think that's so close to you, Barbara. But, um, but I recommend the hash browns. Um, all right, hello to, wow, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce that right. Yasim, tell me if that is correct. Thanks for joining us. Okay, so that was topic number one. So we've got a few more here that I promised to go through. Topic number two, the truth about what it takes to get into a top college. Hint, it's not politically correct. It's not about grades and scores. It's way more than grades and scores. So here's the deal. In most competitive colleges, they care about many other things besides kids who can actually do the work. It's not a pure meritocracy. So this is controversial, and I, I actually have hate email uh, specifically addressing this topic. What I say is that um, the, what, what colleges reserve spots for are special categories. So if you're not a special category, if you're not a, you know, are special categories. So if you're not a special category, if you're not a, you know, if you are a, a plain old white person, and I say this in jest, Although, I'm not a racist, I just want you to know that. I, I love white people. I, I mean, really. I think everybody should have a white friend. Um, that's one of my few financial aid jokes, by the way. 
So anyway, so if you're if you're not in a special category, an example might be underrepresented minority. There's five or six others. I'm just kind of breezing through uh, things today. Um, if you're not in one of those categories, and you look at the average GPA and the average SAT or ACT score, you know there's there's a, a continuum. But if you're you know the white kid or the you know the one who's not a special category, and you're in the middle, that doesn't mean that you have a good shot at getting into that school. What that means is you need to do a little bit more work to get to the upper end because those special categories, which also include recruited athletes, by the way, they tend to drag down those averages. So to get into a top school, you have to understand that uh, at least at least two thirds of the slots are are reserved for non-academic reasons, and you also have to know that grades, yes, they're important, grades and academic credentials, but at a competitive college, that is roughly only about 60% of the equation. So that other 40% has to do with your extracurriculars, and which is the stuff you can control, and then there's stuff that you can't control, like your race or ethnicity, but that's all part of the you know, swirling around the calculus that admissions officers look at to figure out whether or not to give you a spot. So just a quick word about extracurricular activities, because again, I'm trying to just zip through this stuff in about a half hour, and then you know, I'm going to pause for questions periodically. Um, so if you are, you know, if you're thinking about, okay, well, how am I going to distinguish myself from these thousands of other kids who look the same on paper? You've got to kind of think about, okay, what are they doing? Um, so if you are, you know, if you're thinking about, okay, well, how am I going to distinguish myself from these thousands of other kids who look the same on paper? You've got to kind of think about, okay, what are they doing and what should I do that's different or atypical, not the same old typical stuff. It's great to be in a club. It's great to go on the you know, cancer walk or whatever uh, last weekend, that type of stuff. But it's atypical to be uh, to found a club. It's great to play a sport. It's atypical to be at a very you know, high level and a captain and all that. It's interesting or kind of you know, good to be interested in reading and writing. It's atypical to have published a book, okay? So th those are just, I'm trying to just get your wheels turning. All right, so I see some people uh, tuning in here. And I just wanna, s okay, good. Harriet, okay, pins and needles. You're waiting for college responses. Oh, Joanne, hello, Joanne. Uh, we're we're uh, pronounce your name correctly. And Barb is saying Zelda. Either you know Zelda or you know of Zelda, because we've, because Pearl and I figure there's like three people in Maine, so you probably all know each other. Uh, oh, Ro, yeah, I haven't talked to you in a while. I need some college updates from you, too. Okay, so um, let's talk about bullet point number three, how to negotiate a better deal with the college, even if you couldn't get your hands on compromising photos of the dean or some kind of wiretapping or perhaps a dossier, you know, you name it. So... I'm starting to do a little bit of that. I'm writing a few appeal letters each week now, and it's going to get a lot busier in a couple of weeks. And the reason is that um, as, as more offers come in uh, and I start to review them, that's really when things kind of pick up. So let me just give you a timeline if you are either, well, if, for, if you're a senior or you, you have a kid who's going to be a senior at some point. Um, the housing department, or you, you have a kid who's going to be a senior at some point. Um, the housing deposits for college are due in May, for, May 1st. Typically, all financial aid offers come in when everything's said and done by the end of March, beginning of April. So that doesn't really leave a lot of time between April you know, 1st and, uh, and May 1st. 
Did I say March? May, you know, May 1st is housing deposit deadlines. So <clears throat> that doesn't really leave a whole lot of time to figure out you know, what the numbers look like, you know, how much college is going to cost you, and try to negotiate a deal. But that being said, the colleges are also under pressure. It's not just college students and their, and their parents. They're doing whatever they, they can possibly do to enroll kids in college. So, that, so April is really let's make a deal time. Uh, let's make a deal month. So I've talked to a couple clients in the last few days about um, their, uh, their situations. And I just want to kind of zip through some of the commonalities and give you a few tips on negotiating is you should negotiate an offer. So just under, that's, that's the first thing to get is that you can actually try to ask for more money. The second thing is you should base your appeal letter um, on information that they don't have already. So I was talking to one of my clients and we were kind of brainstorming before the weekend, before Snowmageddon, before the Nor'easter. Oh, Barbara, by the way, I forgot to ask you, did you get slammed with snow up there in Maine? Uh, you know, we're still getting some, but no, no wind. Okay, so anyway. Uh, anyway, so, so, so the um, client told me, well, yeah, you know, we're kind of, um, we're older than most parents. Um, you know, we had, our, we had our daughter kind of later in life. And, um, uh, you know, my income is kind of modest. I'm getting near retirement age. Uh, I'm not, you know, really sure how I'm going to pay for college other than, you know, tapping into my retirement. So I said, okay, those, I understand all those things, but they, they know how old, because that's on the financial aid form, so that's not really new information. And, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll try it. I'll, I'll say that. But what I was really looking for is information that has a bearing, either has a bearing on their ability to pay for college, or it's kind of a leverage type of tool to be able to use against them, specifically an offer from another competitor college. So in his, his case, we have uh, a lot of similar offers that, are, that make the cost similar for three different colleges, which always happens, by the way. But uh, we also have some information that they don't know about the client's financial situation, which, to, you know, to, to, call, to, uh, to cut it short, is that um, they have expenses that the school doesn't know about that have to do with caring for an elderly parent, and some other stuff. But some other arguments along the lines of here's some new information are um, such as, okay, so uh, I know that I just filed my financial aid forms to you a couple months ago, but those were based on, for people who filed financial aid forms now, for the kids who are graduating in 2018, the, inf the income information is from 2016. So if something happened since then, like, you know, someone lost their job or they got downsized or they were, you know, forced to make less money for some other way, the financial aid office has no idea whether that happened or not. It's, it's, they're totally blind to that. So that is a good bit of information to tell someone, to tell a financial aid office on an appeal, as well as, you know, sharing other offers, as well as other things that may have happened, like some unusual expenses that could be, you know, related to health insurance not covering certain expenses or, you know, stuff along those lines. So that that's sort of what you should keep in mind. And I always reduce everything to writing. I mean, you know, it's a nice sounding letter. It's thank you very much for taking the time to uh, reconsider my award. I want to give you this new information that has a bearing on my ability to pay for college that you didn't know about, ability to pay for college that you didn't know about, you know, that type of stuff. So the tone should be very grateful. Okay, let me take a quick pause just to see who else is here. Um, Okay, Annie, wish all, wait wait for all offers first. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I, th I think that um, the more leverage you have, the better. I wouldn't jump the gun um, because you may 
unless you're really sure you're not going to get another offer, you're just waiting for like you know, Harvard or something. Um, that I I was you know I would I would definitely be more patient. They're they're not going to run out of money. Uh, so, all right, who else we have here? Oh, Mary, hello, and Jeff from New North High School. Uh, Chris O'Reilly from just kind of at large, lurking around. Um, all right, good. All right, so uh, if you have any questions, pop them in here. Dan, I'm going to get to yours. I'm just trying to go through the rest of what I promised. But if you're just joining us, welcome. This is sort of, I'm just trying to go through the rest of what I promised. But if you're just joining us, welcome. This is sort of a, a makeup impromptu presentation because I was snowed out in, um, in Smithtown, or I mutually uh, decided with Will, the, the program director, even the library in Smithtown was open. We said, you know what, the forecast is iffy, let's just reschedule. So we're gonna, res we're gonna pick a date for me to come back out there, but I figured in the meantime, since I've got all this free time, uh, I thought I would just uh, you know, try to uh, help anyone who registered for that workshop and still wanted this information as well as bringing up, bringing out for um, everyone in the big wide world, including Chris. All right, so let's talk about bullet point number four, the screwball reason that an expensive college can actually cost less than an El Cheapo state school. This is actually counterintuitive, but it's, um, it's an easy explanation. I think you'll agree once I lay it out for you. But that has been pulled away year after year after year for the last 10 to 15 years as a percentage of, um, of their operating budget. So what they've been forced to do is to raise their prices a lot more and seek out-of-state students who pay higher rates than residents of the, of the state, of the in-state uh, resident tuition rate. So in contrast, private colleges, they may start with a higher sticker price and they may start up here and the state school may be here, but, but the private schools tend to discount a lot because they're more competitive, they have more money, so frequently they discount you down, and that could be either need-based or merit-based. It's usually merit-based, but I've seen both. If they want a kid who is going to benefit them, and when I, when I say benefit them, I'm talking about uh, classing up their rankings in U.S. News and World Report. So that's why they will bribe kids with money and they will offer fat, juicy scholarships. That's what. So that's why they will bribe kids with money, and they will offer fat, juicy scholarships. That's where the big money comes from. I, got, I had another question about scholarships um, this afternoon that I'll, I'll share with you. There's two types of scholarships. The big money, what I, which is what I focus on, is from the college endowments themselves, merit scholarships, and those are generally based on grades and scores. But it's very difficult. For, at many colleges to figure out what their exact criteria are, mostly because colleges leave those uh, those criteria kind of squishy. They don't they don't pigeonhole themselves into saying everyone who has a blah blah you know a three point eight GPA and above a, a fourteen hundred SAT or something is going to get the presidential scholarship. It's not it doesn't work that way. They'll say recipients of the presidential scholarship in past years tended to have been in the top five percent of their class and tended to have GPAs of such and such. Years tended to have been in the top five percent of their class and tended to have GPAs of such and such. That's what I see more often than not. They have the wiggle room there because they, at the end of the day, if they want a kid badly enough, uh, they'll give, they'll find the money for them. So that's why uh, the private schools can can actually cost you less because they just have more money to give. Now, so so just to round out that discussion, 
I'm really talking more about private schools versus out-of-state state schools. Private schools versus in-state state schools, that's usually a pretty, uh, a pretty wide gap between those two costs. And it's kind of hard to get an, uh, a private school that starts at like $70,000 down to about $26,000, $28,000 a year. Um, that being said, the other thing to look at is what's, what your total cost is going to be. And the state schools generally have a really bad um, statistical um, history of getting kids out in four years. Private school, which, does, which generally private schools do a lot better job getting kids out in four years. So I'm going to take a sip of water. Anyone who thinks they know is brave enough uh, to answer that question, pop it in comments for the whole world to see. I'm going to drink this water. And anyone who gets it right, I'm going to give you a copy of my new book, How to Pay Wholesale for College. And anyone who gets it wrong can also have it. Okay. So why does it take so long? Why does it take longer? to get out of a state, uh, state school than a private school. Um, I see some answers. All right. So, and I see Chris is lurking. Okay. And I see some other questions coming in. Good. All right. So the answers are, these are all good answers. Um, these are all good answers. Um, D, you're the one with the right answer. But these are all, these, these all contribute. They want to make their money back, too much partying, uh, coddle more, state, state gives them more money. No, it's actually the opposite. Uh, poor basic math, these kids, that's kind of funny. Um, yeah, so the answer is that, and, and you can talk to any parent of a kid who has, uh, who has a kid in a state school, it's not so easy to get the classes that you need to fulfill your major. So give D a virtual uh, hand clap in the, in the Facebook chat. I, there's probably some clapping emoji or emoticons or whatever those things are called. But um, yeah, you got, you got that right. D. Lou, lack of available classes to fulfill major classes to fulfill major. Nice. So, um, you know, there's, there's ways to kind of game the system, but th that's really the issue is that, you, you know, if you're, if you're a business major and you need to take uh, accounting 101 or something, you may not get that for a couple of years because you're behind in uh, priority that to the upperclassmen who still need to take that. Whereas the private schools tend, tend not to have that problem as much. It's not uh, it's not clear across the board that they don't have that problem. It's not universal, but they tend to not have that problem. Okay, good. All right, I see some more questions coming in. D, you are welcome. Yes. Um, okay. Joan, I see you. You're asking me if I see your responses. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just kind of, it's hard for me to go back and forth from camera to my sheet, but I, I am going to be uh, answering questions cost you less out of pocket than a El Chipo state school. All right. Next, the biggest mistake families make in the college admissions and financial, and financial aid and how to avoid it. Okay. Hard one for me to come up with a ju ju just to, to identify just one mistake. But if I had to pick one, and I have to because I said I would, 
then, uh, and I think I speak for Pearl too, who um, would have been here tonight, but she's out drinking like Prosecco with her friend Christine, and she may be watching for all I know, but, um, <clears throat> or she just may be too inebriated. Uh, hopefully I don't have to pick her up in the snow. But um, any, anyway, too much information? It is Facebook. This is the home of too much information. So, um, so what Pearl and I think is, is might be the biggest problem, it, or the, you know, the, biggest, the, the biggest problem that you can avoid easily, easier said than done perhaps, is letting the kid, letting your child drive the bus, drive the train, be in charge of the whole process. So, be in charge of the whole process. So, Pearl and I uh, ran this page um, yesterday for College Talk Tuesday. We did a, uh, a whole segment on um, a case study which was really an, an amalgamation of, of several clients where the gist of it is, you know, the kid's a senior, he gets into two different types of schools, a really super expensive out-of-state state school that's going to be at least 50000 you know, between fifty dollars and $60,000 a year, and he also got into a SUNY school, State University of New York school, for those of you who are, are not uh, New York residents. And of course, he wants to go to the school that's double because of the college experience. And the dad's like, you know, what are you talking about? It's the same quality education. Why would I pay double for it? And then the response is, well, why'd you let me apply to these schools, dad? You know, so the, all sorts of like hurt and emotion and manipulation and, and stuff like that. So I, I'm not sure where the mom stands in this case, but generally the mom's on that one, you know, one typical fact pattern. So, um, I, you know, I, I think that um, what we're looking at potentially is the dad making a pretty big mistake or allow, being swept up in the, I don't know, the guilt or the manipulation or whatever you want to call it of, uh, of his kid and, and maybe the mom. And I, frankly, um, I think that is, I'm not saying that's the wrong choice of school to go to. I mean, th in this particular family situation, I totally see the dad's point. But just, you know, not setting your kids' expectations and letting them drive the train, hey, apply anywhere, we'll figure it out, as opposed to um, what, uh, I think he actually said this, but I don't know if the kid was listening, but uh, the, the, the little, you know, speech sometime over the summer of in between junior and senior years would be something like, look, you can apply anywhere you want, but the numbers have to work out. We don't know what they're going to be. And I know this is hard for you to understand, son or daughter, but... First of all, it is hard for you to understand, son or daughter, but first of all, you've never paid a friggin' bill in your life, so you don't know what it's like to you know, have to come up with a couple extra thousand dollars, let alone another 50 to 60 grand. <laughs> yeah. no, number two, it's, it's odd anyway, even if, you, you know, even if you've never paid a bill in your life, because you know, think about buying a house or a car or something else that's really expensive. You wouldn't allow yourself to fall in love with it if... You know, all things being equal, if you had no clue what the price was, if you had a decent idea what the price was, or you knew it, or you knew what it was, you could decide whether or not it's something you know to go after. But with college, you don't really know what the price is going to be until March or April, uh, maybe even later, but usually around March of senior year of high school, which could be um, what it could be uh, four months after you've submitted the applications and and you're sitting back and twiddling your thumbs and waiting. So I, I get the pressure, I understand that, but that's that, that 53% of eligible families do not apply, don't even, don't even bother applying for financial aid, which is kind of silly. Um, I got that statistic on the internet, where I am right now, so, uh, so I believe it. I've, I've seen it for years, I'm still not really sure where that stat came from, 
seen it in USA Today. I've seen it in a bunch of other places. So uh, whatever the number is, a lot of people leave money on the table because they don't know any better, because they think, you know, why bother? I've heard that such and such. You know, I've heard that Boston College doesn't give any money. Well, in fact, Boston College meets 100% of financial need. Uh, so they do give money to some people. They don't necessarily give money to, you know, families that make $500,000 a year and think they should get money. But they don't, you know, anyone who says something to you like, well, they don't give money, don't bother, or I went through that, first of all, they're not telling you what their tax returns show they're not they probably don't know what your tax returns show they don't probably they probably don't understand think they should get money but they don't you know anyone who says something to you like well they don't get money don't bother or I went through that first of all they're not telling you what their tax returns show they're not they probably don't know what your tax returns show they don't probably they probably don't understand how the financial aid formulas work because there's something like 77 factors so there's a lot of um, just in general there's a lot of urban legend and half-truths flying around, and uh, that's probably another big mistake. That's mistake number three uh, out, of, uh, out of many that I think that parents and families succumb to, is just paying attention to just random, unqualified other people, other parents. Sometimes guidance counselors aren't really qualified. They don't, they're not trained in the nuances of financial aid. So you have to be very careful about uh, who, who you listen to. Me, me too, me included. I mean, you know, just because... Yeah, just because I have this magnificent set here and this high high tech presentation doesn't mean that I know everything. You know, I, I'm good, but with a grain of salt. Okay, I see some more stuff coming in. All right, cool. I see some clapping for D. All right, good. So I will be yeah, good. I will I will address these comments and cheering. Great. Okay. Um, all right. Next uh, topic. <laughs> Your guidance counselor says that can flat out sabotage your chances of admission to your dream school. Okay, so <clears throat> I, I should have made this topic um, stuff your guidance counselor says or does that can sabotage your chances. I've heard some of the nuttiest stories. I'm not bashing guidance counselors, by the way. Uh, there's plenty of good ones, and there's plenty of really bad ones, just the same way there's plenty of bad accountants and lawyers and um, co you know college guys and whatever. But um, I had a client uh, a couple years ago who was um, a really really accomplished kid and her biggest issue when we were doing her applications together when she was um, a, a rising senior is that the the uh, and the reason we put it together is, is, was because the resume in my opinion is a selling document not just a dry recitation of first I did this and I did that there's different ways to describe things some are more powerful and will resonate more and be more impressive sounding than others uh, you know cashiering you could say something like, I worked at a cashier at uh, the local restaurant. Or you could say, um, you know, cashiering duties and responsibilities included settling transactions of between $500 to $1,000 a day, responsible for, responsible for uh, keeping an orderly uh, you know, work area, uh, responsible for um, handling customer complaints and ensuring customer satisfaction. Those are all important things that show your responsibility, show that you're able to deal with people who are not just your peers, but perhaps older people, you know, that you're showing up for work and you're, you know, you're, you're, uh, you know, you're, whatever, you're, you're, uh, you know, you're, whatever. So you get the point. Those are two different ways of describing the same thing. And the guidance counselor told the, um, told this, this girl, you know, I don't think you should submit a resume because, um, the people reading your um, your application may not have had all that stuff in their background, and this is kind of like showing off. 
and I and I said, you know, you're applying to college. What? Why should you? You are showing off. I mean, not not in a douchey way, but this, that's what you're supposed to be doing. You're promoting yourself. This is marketing. It's not about your grades and your scores, or it's not only about your grades and your scores. It's about how you answer the question. Why should we take you compared to these other, you know, five thousand, ten thousand kids? It is showing off. I'm sorry. That was dumb. What else have I heard? I've heard um, a client of mine who just reached out to us yesterday from, from last year. Um, she had her application deleted by her, her guy to us yesterday from, from last year. Um, she had her application deleted by her, her guidance counselor at her private uh, high school where, they pay, where the parents paid tuition for it, for that type of help. After we worked on it for like two months, just deleted, never to be found again. We had to redo it. Um, I heard something two weeks ago, another one, which was something along the lines of the guidance counselor was, was, t was talking one of my clients out of applying to some private colleges. And she said something like, why do you want to apply there? You should apply only to state schools. That was good enough for my kids. Why aren't you applying there? And my response is, I have nothing against the state schools, but I do have, uh, you know, I, I can't believe that a guidance counselor would, it, well, I believe it, I'm sorry, but they shouldn't insert their own, um, you know, their, their own opinions into that. And I think, I think a big problem, this is going to sound snotty, but I think a big problem with a lot of guidance counselors is lead to those types of kids. And um, I'm, not, I'm not even going to tread lightly here because it's a snowstorm, so, you know, anything goes. But, um, you know, frankly, people become guidance counselors a lot because of, you know, because teaching is too, too hard for them. And, you know, say what you will, I, I love teachers. I think they're great. But they don't have the, uh, a job like a fireman who works around the clock or, you know, even some, like, corporate lawyers who are working. You know, I used to practice law for, for you know, for five years. I worked... Yeah, nine to nine, and we did uh, overnights that lasted uh, three nights, uh, three consecutive nights, about three, four times a year. What I'm saying is, <coughs> the, uh, investment bankers, you know, th those are the types of people who, you know, they, they push themselves really hard, and they and they aspire to go to uh, top schools. I, I know this may not, it may not sound great to everyone here. Most guidance counselors were not that type of kid. They didn't necessarily excel academically, and they didn't go to Ivy League or think of themselves as go as belong to the type. They didn't necessarily excel academically, and they didn't go to Ivy League or think of themselves as, go, as belonging in Ivy League schools. That doesn't mean they're bad guidance counselors. To, you know, I'm bracing myself for the hate email. I just think they don't, they don't necessarily relate to the types of kids who are looking at aspirational type schools. Okay, so what do you guys think about that? I'm <laughs> nervous about saying that, but you know, anything goes tonight. If I piss off too many people, I'll probably delete this. Nah, I won't. I'll probably advertise it. All right. So I see some more questions coming. I see a lot of questions. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> joy, funny. Uh, teachers definitely work around the clock. You know, some do. But um, I'm not excited. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not faulting their work ethic at all. I just think that the reason you go into teaching. Is is um, money, of course, which you know, that's a whole other comment. But it's um, a lot of it has to do with the hours and the summers off for for a lot of teachers. That's just factual. All right, now let's talk about the loopholes. Okay, this is good stuff. Four point five loopholes, any one of which could triple your eligibility for aid. Loopholes. Okay, 
So, in the financial aid formulas, some stuff counts against you more than others, and some stuff doesn't count against you at all. Specifically, when I say stuff, I mean savings. So, if you're filling out a FAFSA, it says, tell us your net worth, but don't include the following. Don't include these types of items. And um, specifically, what you should be thinking about is, number one, if you include stuff that shouldn't be included, you're going to ruin your eligibility because you're going to artificially disclose stuff you shouldn't disclose. And the second thing is that um, you may have an opportunity. So if you have money saved in the wrong places, like in your kid's name, where do not ruin your eligibility because you're going to artificially disclose stuff you shouldn't disclose. And the second thing is that um, you may have an opportunity. So if you have money saved in the wrong places, like in your kid's name, where it counts against you the most, you may want to think about pulling it out and putting it into one of these exempt assets. So on the FAFSA, there's four exemptions. And those exemptions are, meaning these do not count as part of your net worth. Retirement accounts, primary residence, annuities, and insurance. Retirement accounts, primary residence, annuities, and insurance. Those are the four horsemen, the four exemptions of financial aid. So retirement accounts means any type of retirement account. Your 401k, your 403b, your 457, and so forth. None of those penalize you. Okay? Next. Um, your primary residence. That is not part of your net worth on the FAFSA. Now, there's another form that a lot of colleges require. But what about um, investment properties or vacation homes and all that? Those count against you everywhere. So just your primary residence is one of the four exemptions on, on the financial aid formulas. Sometimes what people do is they stuff money into their house. They you know, pay off a mortgage or something. I don't think that's the best idea, but I'm not a financial advisor, so I'll let that dangle out there. Um, then there's annuities and insurance. So annuities, all annuities, are totally exempt uh, in the financial aid formula. So sometimes what people will do is they'll take money that's penalizing them and they'll purchase an annuity and then therefore that money is now off the financial aid balance sheet. So if you have $100,000 in the wrong place, you're losing up to 5000 bucks a year for financial aid. If you then take that money and you that's hurting you, 5000 a year, and you put it into an annuity, you've now improved your eligibility by $5,000 a year. Same thing with insurance products, now $1,000 a year. Same thing with insurance products. Now, I mentioned before, and I, I'm like twitching as I say this, um, I'm not a financial advisor. I don't sell uh, investments or things like that. I know enough about this stuff to make me dangerous. Um, but I'd rather be independent, and I don't, you know, I don't want to be like, I don't want to say something at a workshop like, yes, you know, you can improve your eligibility by ten thousand dollars a year um, just by buying uh, an insurance product. And um, oh, look, I have an application here in my um, in my suit. Here, what a coincidence! Help, what a quinky dink. So, so um, I'd, I'd rather just, you know, kind of refer people. I mean, I have a um, good friend of mine, Harry, who uh, handles all that stuff for my clients. So anyway, my point is is that um, th it may benefit you in a vacuum, but you've got to be very vigilant to, to run down all of the um, you know the pros and the cons about moving money around, including if you're going to buy an annuity, then what are the fees? How does that? Uh, same thing with insurance products. Same thing uh, but on, the, on the flip side, if you're going to um, sell a 529 or or another investment, what are the tax consequences and penalties if there are any for doing that? How does that stack up against the possible benefit 
for, for improving your eligibility. So there's all these types of things that you have to consider. That is exactly the type of thing that I work through with, uh, with, with our clients. But um, uh, you need to, you know, if you're going to do this on your own, you need to figure that stuff out before you make any rash decisions. Because look, it may make sense in a vacuum to do this, but if your income is you know too high to begin with, and like I said before, there's no magic ceiling. There's no you know there's no magic line that once you cross it, you're not going to qualify for anything just because that's only one of 77 factors. But um, if you're not going to qualify, then it doesn't matter where you have your money. Or if you're only looking at like state schools that are very unlikely to fund you, who cares how much you can qualify for if they're not going to give it to you anyway? So th those are just some of the random, not so random thoughts uh, that you need to be uh, aware of. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna try to improve your eligibility. Now I did say there's 4.5 loopholes, and um, that dovetails into the special advice and strategies for business owners, which was the last topic I was going to talk about before I went to the questiones. And um, that uh, the 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 0.5 is really a business loophole. So if anyone is is um, self-employed on this uh, on this broadcast. Pay very close attention to the FAFSA if you're filling it out yourself. It asks, what's the value of your business? And the answer for most people, no matter what it really may be, is zero. And the reason I can say that is because it says very clearly in the directions, if you employ 100 or, or I guess less than 100 people in your business that, that you own, then the, you can skip the question. The value of your business is 100 people in your business. That, that you own, then the, you can skip the question. The value of your business is zero. A lot of people don't know that. Even accountants don't know that. So they put down something, I don't know, 50 grand, 200 grand, or, or a million dollars, you know, something like that. So what happens is, they're, they're, you know, same thing as if you make a mistake by over-disclosing a retirement account that shouldn't be disclosed or you know, sharing too much of other, other information that shouldn't be shared, even on Facebook, um, then you will shoot yourself in the foot. You will you will rob yourself of money you otherwise would have been eligible for if you overinflate by accident the value of your business. So most businesses are worth zero for uh, for financial aid purposes on paper. You know, I'm sure your business is, if, if you're self-employed, you have a thriving business and the uh, future's bright, I'm sure. But um, in financial aid, think bleak. Think you know, the world is going to end. Okay, so that was about all I wanted to get through. I'm going to put uh, and you'll get a book, and that link is to download it is financialaidbook.org, I think. Let me just double check that. Yes, so you can just, if you, um, yeah, I just pop that up there. If you, uh, if you, I'll email it to you, just giving your your email address, and uh, and you'll get it. And if you prefer the hard copy instead of the downloadable version, then there's uh, a link to buy that on Amazon. Also, it's kind of in pre-release format, so I, I haven't had ever I haven't had it checked for um, uh, gram grammar and spelling and stuff uh, that thoroughly. So if you spot anything, please let me know. Okay, let's go through some of these questions and funny comments. All right. So, Dan Maloney, first question. You mentioned earlier about looking for colleges with good career services. How do you find those? There's no database, but you need to. So, Dan Maloney, first question. You mentioned earlier about looking for colleges with good career services. How do you find those? There's no database, but you need to do your due diligence and um, visit, career uh, visit career centers at each college on your list. 
you know, some schools are known for their career centers list. I think maybe Forbes or um, who was it? I think Forbes might publish a list of schools with the best best career services. Um, Princeton Review, I think, might also. I usually see colleges like Bentley in Boston, which have great um, uh, great internships, and Penn State always seems to have great career services, top five. So uh, I just know that from experience, but yeah, I would, I would check out Forbes or just kind of search that, I guess. Um, all right, so Annie, Jeff, Mary, Chris, Joanne, what about deadlines? Do this before May 1st. The negotiating, yeah, you need to do it. Um, April's a very busy month. It's a very ugly. It, um, April's a very busy month. It's a very ugly, busy month. So yes, absolutely. Uh, Chris Lurking, Monica Schlesinger, is merit aid negotiable? 100%, totally negotiable. Probably a little bit easier to negotiate merit money than need-based money. So yes, 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 yes. Great question, thank you. I'm gonna like that question. And I guess I'll like Chris just for lurking. Um, Joanne, does the parent versus quiet child do the negotiating? Uh, I think you should do it on paper, writing. So um, e even if you're writing a letter as your kid, I think most financial aid officers, most admissions people understand that kids really aren't equipped to negotiate. So I, I don't ever use that fiction personally. Um, however, if you talk, and you know, I go to all these conferences, and you may have heard stuff on college tours about... Um, you know, financial aid officers or admissions people saying, we always want to hear from the kid. We're very impressed when we hear from the kid. So I wouldn't do it over the phone. Um, so you can be a quiet child if you're a, a decent writer. All right, Anne-Marie Cross, if you go to a community college for a semester or a year, you start the whole application process over again if you want to transfer to a non-community uh, non college. Yeah, you do, uh, unless you got in and deferred. But applying to college from community college is really in terms of the application process is really the same as applying from high school. So thank you for that question. Uh, all right, then I saw some answers that D got correct, but I still see, yeah, I see some other good answers there. When I did the little challenge there, too much partying, that's funny. Uh, Joan is a friend of Lynn. Deborah, go D. Uh, Chris telling me to multitask. Thank you so much. Thanks for your support. Uh, Chris telling me to multitask. Thank you so much. Thanks for your support. Um, Deborah Peretz, I think you're the person who my friend Halit works with. <laughs> Our good friends. I am that person. Yeah, definitely Daniel uh, Ryan, to be determined, although he's, he's taking ACT classes with us. He's a great kid. Um, what's more important, grades or AC? Okay, that's a good question, Deborah. What's more important, grades or SAT or ACT scores? Um, grades, scores, and rigor, those are the big three. Your GPA, your ACT or SAT scores, and how many APs you've taken. Th those are the, the, the most important components of uh, on the academic side, and those together roughly uh, comprise roughly 60% of the admissions decision, uh, the admissions officer's decision whether to admit you or not. <clears throat> so it's not that grades are more important than scores and or scores are let you or not. <clears throat> so it's not that grades are more important than scores and or scores are less important. You know, I think I had to give a nod to one grades are more, more important, but grades in, in hard classes like AP or IB classes, more so than honors, more so than regular curriculum classes. 
And um, on that note, I don't think the uh, ACT or the SAT is going any going away anytime in the near future, if at all. And the reason for that is because the most commonly given grade in high school is an A. There's so much grade inflation that's very hard for admissions officers to be able to figure out whether a kid uh, can actually do the work in college. And sometimes, a lot of times, parents are baffled um, when kids have high GPAs but their ACT or SATs are very low. Um, the answer frequently is because of that grade inflation, is that they're getting A's, but um, it's the most commonly given grade, and when they're giving a standardized test, which is, there's no, there's no purely objective way to, to parents are, or, or whether they went to college. Those are actually um, better predictors of how well a kid's going to do in college, but um, they're, they're still accurate. There's still some value in them, and that's why they're not going away. Uh, at any time soon, so you need to do really well on them um, if you aspire to go to you know schools that that have traditionally have had kids with high scores. Okay, um, Teresa Souther, juniors making a list of schools. How to find the ones most likely to offer merit aid? Good, good, good question. Here's the my shorthand. Um, so state schools unlikely but possible. Private schools better bet. If you look at everyone that the college admitted the previous year, the, the raw number, and you look at the median SAT and ACT score, and you can kind of see based on that where you fall. And if you're in the top 25% of that continuum, then you have a much better shot at getting money. Getting in and getting Then you have a much better shot at getting money. Getting in and getting money. So if you're in the top 25% in terms of grades and scores, I like your chances of getting married. Okay. Uh, joy, funny. Um, Annie, teachers definitely work around the clock. And yeah, I mean, I know, I don't, I don't mean that. Uh, I hope you, I hope everyone took this. I know I'm going to offend somebody, but I'm just, you know, saying what I have perceived. Um, we, we have great. Our kids have great teachers. Yeah, but I, I'm not saying they're great because of their work hours. I'm just, I'm just saying that they're, yeah, you know, they're they have to be great more because of their personalities. I think. Um, Cynthia, there should be a way to measure a guidance counselor and their success, maybe a rating system by the kids they work with. Um, the only thing that troubles me about rating systems in general, not just for, not just like what you're talking about, but those ratemyprofessor.com you know, ratings or whatever, is um, you got to take everything with a grain of salt. You know, the, the, the on rate my professors are the ones that give the highest grades. So... You know, the, the ones that are the hardest or the most difficult, those are probably better professors. You know, if I had to pick, pick one, if you're trying to, you know, challenge a kid and um, get them to use their brains more. So, you know, guidance counselors, um, I, th I think the problem with rating teachers or guidance counselors is there's only so much that they can control. And, and the problem inherently is that um, the kid's effort can't be rated. So I don't, I don't really know. I don't. Yeah, I'm not. Maybe I shouldn't even brought it up at all because I don't, I don't have a solution to it. I don't, I don't know if it's really a problem, by the way. I just think the, I think, I actually think, want to get a little esoteric here. I think the, the education system works perfectly, and I don't know anyone. I know very few people who agree with me. But here's why I think that. Uh, think about why the educational system, uh, secondary education, was created. It was created back when we were in an agrarian society. I know very few people who agree with me, but here's why I think that. Uh, think about why the educational system, uh, secondary education, was created. It was created back when we were in an agrarian society, 
and you know, as the Industrial Revolution was starting to gear up and hum along, we needed to, we meaning uh, as a country, but the industrialists needed to get families off the farm, kids off the farm, and train them to work in factories. So they were actually the ones behind um, creating, you know, in, in Massachusetts and, and other uh, early places, um, the, the first secondary schools. And so what they have are, you know, so here, here's what happens in these factories. You have, um, well, I'm sorry, here's what happens in school as, as created by the industrialists. You have uh, a boss at the head of the class who just, you know, tells kids what to do, who sit there, you know, and they, they, they take notes. They're learn they sit there for long periods of time, for maybe 45, 50 minutes. Again, they're not really rewarded for, uh, for questioning the authority or, or, or challenging or anything like that. That's, you know, that, that, that was how we were trained to um, get off the farm and into the factories. Um, by the way, I remember reading how um, uh, before the first educational, I don't know if it was Horace Mann or someone, but before the first school was started in Massachusetts, literacy, literacy rates were like 98%, and then once they established schools, it was like 50%, <laughs> something ridiculous and counterintuitive like that. So that's why I think the educational system works because it does what it's supposed to do, which is kind of train kids to just follow orders and shuffle around and you know not really question authority and all that. Uh, unfortunately, um, I don't know if that really. I mean, I don't think that bodes well for life after school, but um, I don't think it's broken. So that is my esoteric moment for you guys. All right, what else? Um, Chris, some wisecrack as usual. Writing an appeal, can you tell them too much of the work against you? For example, debt history, bills and arrears, etc. Um, it's not going to hurt you in terms of, uh, I think you might be asking whether it's going to show like weakness that you can't afford to send your kid to school there at all. I think that, um, you know, there's probably a line that you don't want to cross. But if you've had genuine hardship because, I don't know, because of, div of a divorce or medical issues or something like that, that is, that's, that's appropriate to be able to, uh, to, to, to mount as an argument. But um, you don't want to make it seem like, you know, um, you're just going to create a, more of a problem for them. Like you're going to enroll your kid and then you'll never be able to pay. You know, so you got to kind of use your own judgment that way. That's an interesting question. Um, Yassim, how do you negotiate better merit scholarships? Okay, two things. One, I'm going to give you a shameless plug uh, for my course on that, Appeals Club. The gist of it is if you have other offers from other colleges, that is going to be very helpful. If you are being, you know, if you if you are trying to get more money from a school, it's going to cost you more than the other colleges that that particular school that you want to go to uh, competes with. That's the best case scenario. So when I have sophomores and juniors who are, you know, I'm helping construct a college list. Always, I suggest competitor colleges for them to um, possibly use as like a straw man to get in and get a better offer from just to use against the A-list college. So if you're thinking about this ahead of time, that's something to keep in the back of your mind. If you have a list of 12 schools, 10 or 12 schools, I think it makes sense to have one or two chosen just for negotiating purposes. So that's the best way to do it. Um, you know, the rest of the story is, you know, you want to be very courteous and uh, ask them to reevaluate your award. You bring up any news and uh, ask them to reevaluate your award. You bring up any new bits of information that they, they don't have uh, before, which you know in this case would be other offers. 
Uh, it really depends on the situation, though, and um, you know, you're, you're welcome. I think we're charging still only $97 for appealsclass.com training. It's got all sorts of sample letters, and I'll even help you write your letter. Uh, I'll, I'll look over your draft and give you some advice on it. So <clears throat> that is my shameless plug of the evening. So I'm giving away a free book, but I'm plugging the appeals class. Um, all right. Ian Cross, what percentage did you say that grade scores and rigor comprise? 60, 60%. What's the rest of the percentage? 40. Um, it's everything else. It's, uh, I don't think you're asking me to do the arithmetic. It's, um, you know, it's your stuff you cannot control, like your ethnicity and what state you live in. Well, I guess you can control that a little bit. Okay. Moving along. Um, Joanne... If you're divorced, do they need to know that person's income or that the parent won't contribute? Yes. Um, the answer is that most schools don't find out about the ex-spouse because um, only one spouse will, will disclose information. <clears throat> that being said, um, some of those I mentioned before, there's two main financial aid forms, the FAFSA and the CSS profile. 400 colleges take the CSS profile. I'd say, if I had to guess, 25 to 30% of those schools. So maybe um, 100 to 100 and something, 125, 150 of those schools also require a non-custodial parent um, filing. They, they have to do their own, a non-custodial parent um, filing. They have to do their own profile, too. So if you're asking me, um, do they need to know that person's income um, or if that person won't contribute, they may or they may not. You need to tell them. If they're not going to contribute, if they're the deadbeat dad, by the way, never deadbeat mom, if they're deadbeat dad, you should absolutely tell them that that's the case. Uh, tug on their heartstrings. You know, most financial aid and, and um, admissions officers are human beings and they have feelings just like we do. And uh, that can only help your argument, but it's, it definitely helps um, explain why you don't have money saved for college uh, and that type of thing. So um, in my experience, uh, divorced single moms tend to be looked upon very favorably and they tend to do very well in this process. Okay, good question. Barb, okay, good question. Barb, can you mail the, my book to me, to me? It's an electronic copy, or you can buy it on Amazon, Barb. Let's not get crazy, okay? I think you. Ha I thought you read it. I thought you said you had it. Um, but uh, if, if you bring Faith down for a boot camp, I'll have some extras lying around. How's that? I can promise you that. Okay, I think we are uh, still... The 30-something people on, but I am out of everything I wanted to cover. Oh, no, I, I want to say one more thing about scholarships. So here's the deal with scholarships. Um, the big money, I mentioned before, comes from the college endowments themselves. Now, there are little scholarships. There are outside scholarships that come from, you know, mostly, uh, I think the best bets are like high school um, lists, Rotary, Chamber of Commerce. Um, I'm part of the Rotary uh, here in, uh, in Glenhead. I'm a Rotarian. Um, and they give scholarships. So the thing about that is, and I, I was uh, here in, uh, in Glenhead, I'm a Rotarian, um, and they give scholarships. So the thing about that is, and I, I was discussing this with a client of mine yesterday, 
Um, he received, his daughter's a senior, she received a lot of nice, healthy financial aid awards, need-based financial aid awards, and he said, you know, what about um, Isabel applying for some scholarships? And I said, look, I made a couple comments. The first is that many parents, you know, it's never the kids, but some, uh, hardly ever the kids, will spend hours that turn to days and weeks and months going down the scholarship rabbit hole on websites, um, entering fake contests, you know, getting all kinds of spam and solicitations that they unknowingly signed up for. I don't really know people, I mean, I've heard of them, I've read about it on websites, but I don't really know anyone who got a ton of money or anything significant from scholarship searches online. Um, I do know someone who specializes in expertise that paid off. That being said, let's say that you were somehow able to cobble together $5,000 from seven or eight different um, uh, different scholarships. When my, in my client's case, when we were talking about his daughter Isabel, I said, look, you, you've received a nice need-based financial aid award that's based on your resources that you have uh, to be able to use to pay for college. But now what you're talking about is trying to come up with more resources that weren't on, that were not disclosed on your financial aid forms, but you're obligated to continue, uh, to update the school if you get some more money, because that's part of what you're signing off with when you, when you, uh, signing off on when you do the financial aid forms. So if you're able to come up with another, you know, whatever I said, 10,000 bucks, 6,000 bucks, what that represents is more resources that will take away from the previously issued award from the college. That's the problem. You can spend all the issued award from the college. That's the problem. You can spend all these you know, days, hours, weeks, and months come cobbling together these scholarships only to find that they take away from what you would have gotten from the school had you had the resources that you had before you were awarded these seven scholarships. So I'm very iffy and wishy-washy, to say the least, on the whole scholarship thing. Now, that being said, if you know you're not going to qualify for need-based aid, then have at it. Go for those scholarships. And I still think the best bet is the local stuff that may not be online. And if you have someone you know like that, just, just private message me here. Um, I mean, if you're not going to qualify for need-based aid and, you, and your kid feels like you know, filling out some more applications and stuff, I'll refer you to uh, my friend Ashley, who... Um, is very good at uh, coaching kids through that process and helping them qualify for scholarships. Okay, so that was really my final, my, my true final comment. And let Barb has incomparable student. Yes, Faith is special, but you probably have the incomparable applicant. The IA, as we call it, in the biz. Um, Annie, in the appeal letter with the job loss or change, do you mention the figures, how much it decreased, Will they ask for current docs? I'd be as specific as possible in anything that you, um, anything that you claim, be prepared to back it up, for sure. So, great question. That is important. Um, Joan says, Lynn was right. You are, <laughs> you are wonderful. Um, I wish I knew who Lynn was, but I agree with her. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure which Lynn you're talking about. But, uh, but thanks. Um, I have my moments. You know, not everyone agrees with me, especially Chris. Uh, I don't think I see any other questions. So, my meeting if you were to reward you for sticking around. Um, if you want to set up a quick, meaning 20-minute conversation 
um, about your personal financial plan, meaning if you are interested, you're genuinely interested in exploring working together, it's no obligation to work with us. I may not even think that you're a good fit for us. That happens a lot. Um, one out of three times, sometimes. Um, then you are more than more than welcome to book a free uh, college strategy session. I just put the link up here, which I'm going to take down tomorrow. Um, mostly because I'm totally out of the free advice business. That was, or almost out of the free advice business. I just, I could do that all day long if I wanted to, but I want to thank you for joining me tonight. Like I said, this is an impromptu thing. Uh, you could have been doing a whole lot of other stuff. So I appreciate the, um, uh, absolutely, I appreciate but you could, like I said, you had other things to do, so I, 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 there's no place I'd rather be, so I think it's important. And you're more than welcome to, um, oh, I see a lot of likes and stuff, cool. Thank you for the likes. Please share this information. I think that'd be really cool if um, you could uh, share this with any of your friends who are stressed out about this, who are not getting the right answers, from guidance counselors who aren't overly sensitive and they don't mind the uh, non-politically correct crap that comes out of my mouth. Uh, that would be great. So, um, so thanks a lot again, and I will, you know, we'll be back on the air every Friday. We do a free hour of coaching. I just take any questions that come in. That's at nine o'clock. Same, same thing right here. And every Tuesday, Pearl and I do a, um, uh, a college, uh, college talk Tuesday show, which is kind of a, here's what you need to be doing now type of format. So that's it. And then we do all these webinars and workshops and stuff like that. Whatever, I just want to make sure you get the information. Okay, guys, and I'll speak to you soon. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Andy Lockwood. Don't forget to visit our website, LockwoodCollegePrep.com, for some more free, valuable information on how you can multiply your chances of admission to your dream colleges and qualify for thousands or tens of thousands of dollars of fat, juicy scholarships along the way. Visit LockwoodCollegePrep.com for information on our free upcoming workshops and webinars and to download a copy of our number one best-selling book, How to Pay Wholesale for College. That's LockwoodCollegePrep.com.